If you have your Bible, uh, I encourage you to open it to Micah chapter 6. Um, and this is an interesting, this is a powerful section of Scripture. We are only going to look at eight verses in this chapter. Uh, we are going to, um, we're, going, we're on the, the back end, the back edge of this st- series in Micah. Uh, this, this, this morning we're talking about Micah 6. Uh, next Sunday, uh, Angie Yoho, I, uh, I asked and she thankfully said yes to, to sharing with you next Sunday uh, from Romans. Related to Micah, uh, but it's taking a step out of Micah uh, for a week. So I'm thankful uh, that she is uh, going to be uh, leading us next, next Sunday. And then two more Sundays and Micah wrapping up the last part of chapter 6 and chapter 7 before we get into our Advent series. And this Advent series I'm excited about. It's Jesus on every page. Uh, sometimes we, when we look at the, the story of Jesus, we go immediately to the, to the New Testament. Um, but in the Old Testament, we are able to see Jesus all throughout. And that's going to be the focus of our Advent series this year. Uh, we, are, we are looking uh, uh, at, at Jesus in the Old Testament, in, in the prophets, in his people, in the pictures we see. Uh, Becky Postlewaite and Brett Howard are going to share in the teaching of that, that series in end of November and into December. So I'm excited about that. Now we are in Micah chapter 6. And I want to encourage you to picture this in a certain setting this morning. Uh, We have talked about this idea of a trial all throughout this study in Micah. Today, I want you to see chapter 6 in sort of a courtroom setting. And you'll see why as we go through these eight verses. If you have your Bible, uh, just read through. And we're going to pause throughout uh, just to look at some things. Micah, right off the bat, makes it evident that this isn't his words. The first part of chapter 6, verse 1 says, now listen to what the Lord is saying. Micah might have said these words to the people. He may have written them down, but these are, have no doubt about it, these are God's words. And God says to his people, rise, plead your case. Courtroom setting. He's telling Israel, plead your case. And here is the jury before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. He's saying, oh, you're going to, you have something, you have a complaint against me, so we're going to, we're going to, ha- we're going to have this out. And the, the jury is going to be creation that has been around much longer than you, who has seen, who has witnessed all that I have done for you. Plead your case to that. Hills, in verse number two, Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains, and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. To have God say, I have a case against you, had to be crippling to his people. I don't know about you, but as I was growing up, uh, there, we had a rule uh, in my house. If I got the Board of Education... Right, which was that piece of wood about this long. If I got paddled at school, all right, we don't do this anymore, but if I got paddled at school, I got paddled at home. Right? So there was one time, one time, where I got paddled at school. And I came home expecting the paddle at home. And how I wish, John, that that was the case. That dad would have said it happened there, it happened here, but no. Dad had to go a much more severe route. He said, I'm disappointed in you. 
I would rather have my dad have picked up the paddle and, and, and just gave me two whacks like the principal did rather than to hear those words. And that's what God is saying here. I have, I have, a, I have a complaint. I have a case against my people. And he starts in verse number three with that, with that case. My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Would you tell me? Would you, would you tell me why, why you have broken your covenant with me, why you have wandered away, why you have walked away, drifted away from me? Can you tell me what happened? And then he breaks into, in these next few verses, just this powerful and very, very deep picture of history, the history of Israel. Indeed, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. Do you remember do you remember when you went to Egypt as, an, as a small band of people to escape the famine and Joseph was blessed and he found favor in the, the eyes of the kingdom in Egypt and you grew in number, you grew in strength, but then through the generations, a new king, a new ruler came in and he forgot. He didn't know about Joseph and he forgot all about it. He got worried, he got scared because you guys were so numerous and so powerful, so they enslaved you and they treated you horribly. And don't you remember how I led you out of that slavery? How can you forget? I, I, and then he goes, and I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam ahead of you. I sent you leaders, godly men and women after my heart, willing to put their life on the line for you. He sent Moses, a prophet, a lawgiver, a leader. He sent Aaron, a priest, to intercede for the people to God. He sent Miriam, who may be the first worship leader we have in Scripture. Do you remember when they crossed the Red Sea and, uh, on dry land? And they got to the other side, Miriam led the congregation in praising God. He said, I gave you these people. He said, and my people remember what Balak, the king of Moab, proposed. And Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened? Do you remember this story? Balaam was basically a prophet for hire. If you had a little bunny in your pocket, you could give it to him, and he would say whatever you wanted him to say to your enemy. He would curse them. He would, he would come up with, with, with whatever you wanted to hear. So what happened is, is Balak, the king of Moab, come and said, hey, I don't like these people. I don't like these Israelite people. I want you to curse them, and here's the money to do it. So they take a, he, Balak takes Balaam up on a high mountain, and, and he says, okay, you got what you're going to say. Yeah, I got what I'm going to say. You're going to curse them. Yeah, I'm going to curse them. And he gets ready to curse them, and what comes out? Blessing. Now, I don't know if, if you uh, are, are a, a movie, and this is about 15 years or so ago now, but when I picture this, I would love to have seen this, Balaam getting ready to pronounce a curse upon the people, and when he gets ready to say that curse, blessing comes out. I, I, it sort of puts me in the mind of a Jim Carrey movie where he goes to say something and then he has to say, he's forced to say something else. And Balak says, okay, evidently God's the king of this hill, but let's go over here. Maybe he's not the king of that hill. So they try it two more times. And every time Balaam goes to say a, cur a blessing or a curse, out comes a blessing. And this prophet for hire has to utter I guess I can't say anything except what God wants me to say. God says, do you remember how I orchestrated all that? 
This king, uh, this Moab king was ready to curse you, and I orchestrated that for blessing. How can you forget that? And then as you keep reading, um, it says, um, and, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, or from Shittim to Gilgal? And I don't know if you remember this, but this is at the end of those 40 years that Israel has been wandering around in the wilderness, and they're now getting ready to go into the promised, promised land. That, that land that God had promised Abraham many years ago. The only problem is you have to cross the Jordan River. The only problem with that is it was flooding time. And God said, let the priests go first. Let the Ark of the Covenant go first. And as soon as those priests had the obedience and the courage to step into the flooding waters, the waters dried up. That was between the Acacia Grove on one side and Gilgal on the other. How can you forget this? I led you out. I gave you people. I, 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 I confused the words of false prophets, and I led you across on dry land a second time. How can you forget this? And I, he told them all this, and he reminded, it all, reminded them of all of this, so that at the end of verse number five, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. And then it goes back to the people. It's their turn. And the people come and say, well, what should I bring before the Lord? What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? And here, maybe the most ironic section of Scripture in all the Bible, should I give my firstborn? For my transgression, the child of my body, for my own sin. And I want you to notice what's going on here. He starts with something that could be possible. He says, when I come and I give a burnt offering, right? Okay, God, I'm going to give you a burnt offering, not a grain offering, right? A grain offering means some of the other offerings, I get to keep a little bit of it. A burnt offering is completely burnt up. God gets all of it. So I'm going to give you all of that burnt offering that I bring. How about that? Better yet, I'm going to bring you something that's a year old, not something that was just born. I've put a year, 365 days of care and love into this, God. Here's what I can bring to you. And then the next thing he said, he just goes complete hyperbole because he's talking, he's talking about, could I bring to you a, a, a thousands or tens of thousands of rams. That is out of anybody's budget except somebody who's the king of a country. And then he goes a step further. How about 10,000 streams of oil? Oil was never brought by itself as a sacrifice. It was always a part of another one. And he's talking here about streams or rivers of oil. Completely impossible. And then he comes and he says, okay, how about my first, firstborn? How about I offer my own blood, my own body for my transgressions? And you got to just imagine God shaking his head. Like, guys, I've already told you. I've told you time and time again what is good and what I require. Verse number eight, mankind, he has told you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. It's pretty simple stuff, it looks like, at least on the page of this Bible. 
right? It doesn't even take up three whole lines in my Bible. He says, to act justly, to, to love faithfulness, to walk humbly with your God. That's the Holman Christian standard. ESV, some other ones might say something like, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Newton said that this section, this verse of Scripture may be the most misunderstood, misunderstood section of Scripture in all of the Bible. How? I mean, it's three partial lines. How can we mess this up? How can we misconstrue this so easily? Well, because there's three ways you can look at this. One and two lead us into a heap of trouble. Only the third one is the proper way to look at this. You see, we come to this, and, and we look at this, and we say, we, we, look, we see do justice. We say be kind, and we do it without the gospel. This, when we do this, when we say be nice to people, when we say do justice, that is a type of social justice that is completely different from the justice, from even the social justice that God would describe in his book for us. And you know where it leads us? Straight to hell. Being good is not enough. Loving is not enough. Void of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing we do is that we, we, we don't look at this without the gospel, but we look at this as if it was the gospel. If the first one is social justice, the second uh, the way that we approach this is the social gospel. We believe that we can be good enough, that we can do enough good things that we garner God's favor. The, that once we, once we accumulate enough points, enough bonus points with God, then grace kicks in, takes us the rest of the way home. No, you know where that leads us? Same place as option number one. In one, without the gospel. In the second, in, uh, in, as if it was the gospel. No, you must keep reading, church. To walk humbly with your God, to act justly and to love kindness doesn't get you in a right relationship with God, no matter how good you are at them. To act justly and to love faithfulness without being in a right relationship with God is eventually going to end up the same place that denying God altogether is going to lead you. And that, that, that wording, to walk humbly, right, that, that, that is, that is, that's, that's all in. Yeah, you're all in in a relationship with We think, church, we think people, that we can change the world by getting people to act the right way. I believe Brett, when he would preach regularly, would use the term behavior modification. We use scripture as behavior modification. If we can just get people to act the right way, we'll be good. If we can just put the right, right laws into place, everything will be awesome. If we can just have the right outward expression, everything will be great. And God is saying here, I don't want your stuff. I don't want outward expressions. I want all of you. 
I encourage you this week to go back and to read Matthew chapter 23. If God is talking to the, 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 specifically to Judah first and Micah and then to us, and in, in Matthew chapter 23, he's speaking to scribes and Pharisees and also to us, man, he has some, he has some powerful words for us, some very powerful warnings for us. And in Matthew chapter 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faith. These things have been done without, these things should have been done without neglecting the other. And he calls you blind guides. You strain out a gnat and you gulp down a camel. And if you keep reading down through there, he, he refers to you as, as vipers, as, as inside is, is, is filthy while the outside might look clean. He compares people who just go through the actions as tombs full of dead men's bones. We think that we can change the world just by, by getting people to act the right way. God says the only way you're going to change the world is by realizing as he said up in verse number five, realizing and acknowledging the Lord's righteous acts. We just went through several generations real quick like of the righteous acts of God for the nation of Judah. <laughs> That's our history too, church, and it continues forward. That God who parted the Red Sea, that God who, who confused the words of a prophet, that God who raised up men and women to lead does the same thing today. Think of your faith journey. Think of those men and women that God has plopped into your life and made a difference for you. Go back to the New Testament, how God created this group of 12 that nobody else had chosen and transformed the world through them. Think of how by the faithful obedience of carpenters and fishermen and tax collectors and religious and, and, and political nuts changed the, the world because of their obedience. Think of the people that he's put into your life. Maybe he interjected somebody into your life that greatly and drastically and immediately changed the tra trajectory of your life. Maybe he orchestrated your story in such a way that you were born into a strong faith family and you're able to look back and see men and women who have led you to this place today. We will never get where we need to be unless we walk humbly with our God and acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. Just work your way backward through Micah so far. And you can see all of the righteous acts of God, how out of the insignificant, tiny little blip on the map called Bethlehem that he raised up, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Lord of the world, to stand for you, to shepherd you, to be your peace, to rescue you from evil. We're going to close with a song. I'm 50 years old, and I'm sure that I've been singing this song for 50 years. I may not remember the first two or three, um, but I've been singing this song, It Is Well With My Soul. been singing it and singing it, and we've been singing it for the 15 years that we've been apart here. And as I sing this, and as I go back over it, I realize something. You guys messed it up. 
Horatio Spafford wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul, long before any of us were on this planet. And just so that I could be sure that I wasn't wrong, I went back to find proof. And I did just like you guys do when you want to prove something. You get on Google and you just Google it. And I actually found the letter of his manuscript of where he wrote this song. And as we sing through this song, and Danny, if you would, go ahead and, and put up the one that we sing. This is what we have been singing. What, and, and I'll go, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, we sing, thou hast taught me to say. That's not right. You Baptists have messed it up. <laughs> Brother Horatio wrote this. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know. There's something different between saying and knowing. Jesus himself said, anybody who says, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, who says, Lord, Lord, is going to be ushered into heaven. Even the demons say, hey, there's Jesus, but they don't believe. There's something different between saying and knowing. Knowing is is what Micah is getting at in Micah chapter 6. The people were saying all the right stuff. Let me bring, let me bring, let me bring. God says, I don't want your stuff, I want you. So today as we sing, I want you to picture another scene. Micah chapter 6 is this courtroom scene. Micah, er, er, it's in, in the hymnal, uh, it's 493. We're singing a medley of it. But I want you to picture this. When I, where I grew up, the minister's son loved singing, and man, he loved this song. It was an a cappella church, but man, he would, you know, whenever it says our sins are nailed to the cross, Jody was pounding those sins to the cross. So, so today, with the same energy that we sang the amazing words of rattle, with the same passion that we sung the other songs. I want us to sing this song and mean it, that it is well with my soul. Not because I can act justly all by myself. Not because I can be loving every once in a while. But because of the righteous acts of God, which sealed us all when Jesus came and lived for us, came and died for us, came and defeated death for us.